Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies, part of the New Books Network series of podcasts. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat, and I'm blessed and honored to be in dialogue today with my guest, Dr. Mimi Scheller. Mimi Scheller is the Dean of the Global School at Worcester Polytechnic Institute in Worcester, Massachusetts. We are here today to discuss her new book, Island Futures, Caribbean Survival in the Anthropocene, published by Duke University Press 2020. Mimi, it's an honor and a blessing to be in communication with you today. Thank you. Hi, Ari. Nice to be here. Thank you. Great to be talking with you. Um, I loved reading your book. And before I start asking you about it, um, I'd like to ask you about yourself. Where did you grow up? Where did you study? And what experiences, books, courses, teachers inspired you along your intellectual journey? Sure. So I was born and grew up in Philadelphia. And um, my, my mother came from Philadelphia. My father was from Brooklyn. And they were a big uh, influence on my life. And my family came from a Jewish background, sort of great grandparents who'd left Eastern Europe in the turn of the 20th century. Um, And, you know, as a child, some of my first educational experiences were actually um, American public school, but also Hebrew school. Yes. And so I very quickly... um, saw that there was uh, another kind of history out there that we weren't being taught necessarily in our American school system. So, you know, I could see there's this other language of Hebrew as well as the Yiddish language that my, you know, great grandparents spoke. And I could see that there was a history about Eastern Europe and the history, um, for example, about the Holocaust, that really none of that was something we were exposed to in school. So I think I always approached education as um, kind of having complex, different perspectives and languages and cultures that uh, had both a presence, but also sometimes were absent in what we were learning. So I always questioned what I was learning. Uh, Later, I went on to go to a Quaker school in Philadelphia for high school and both my sort of Jewish education and that Quaker education had a really strong component of social justice um, and kind of interfaith uh, collaboration. And so I always came to um, the work I was doing kind of thinking about social justice, thinking about uh, how we could help uh, those who were, you know, suffering in the world, how we could promote peace and, Um, promote, you know, cross-cultural communication. I think that was sort of embedded in my whole education. Um, And the other part of it was that it was an interdisciplinary education. So one of the reasons I wanted to go to uh, Germantown Friends School was because they had a course called Latin History, where we studied uh, with a Latin teacher and with an ancient history teacher And the whole class went on a trip to Italy um, in the spring. And 
both of the teachers came with us. And so we sort of learned Latin history through this lens of language and culture and experiential on-site learning, which was an incredible experience and gave me this kind of love of the idea that um, education is like a full 3D cultural experience, right? You kind of, you have to be there and you have to try the language and you have to experience the place to really understand history and culture. So those are some of the things that influenced my um, beginning work. And then in college, um, I went to Harvard as an undergraduate and I majored in um, a combined degree that's called history and literature or it was a department that could, that did both history and literature together. So again, I was sort of seeking that more holistic experience of, of doing more, more things at once. Um, and that kind of also is what led me to an interest in Caribbean studies, because Caribbean studies is a field that is extremely um, interdisciplinary, multilingual, multicultural, um, crosses all kinds of boundaries, and also for me embodied that, um, that learning that had been missing from my education. So having learned about, for example, the American Revolution or the French Revolution, they had forgotten to teach us about the Haitian Revolution, which was a very important revolution. So th that's um, something that I was really interested in was Caribbean political history. And that kind of led me on my um, direction towards what became this book. If you don't mind, I'd be curious to ask you, what does it mean to you to study Haiti as a as a Jewish person? Um, in your perspective, in light of what you alluded to, um, how does your Jewish identity inform the way you understand Haiti's history? That is such a great question. And it's really complicated to answer. And I'll try to to say what I can, which is, is that on the one hand, there is a lot of um, tensions, let's say between um, a kind of, let's call it Afrocentric and black liberationist um, perspectives, which sometimes have seen um, Jewish uh, presence in the transatlantic world as being involved with aspects of um, the slave trade, of financial um, mercantilism, of um, kind of profiting from it in a way, and also the sort of tensions over uh, whiteness and Jewishness um, when it's understood as something that has not contributed to anti-racist thinking in, in, in that kind of critical Afrocentric perspective. On the other hand, there's a deep tradition which I want to sort of raise up and highlight of Black and Jewish um, alliances, anti-racist alliances and collaboration together. And that includes in, you know, this, the civil rights movement and in the, the sort of work for um, social justice in these kind of interfaith communities and um, progressive politics. Um, my own, my father, uh, when he began his career as a lawyer, he worked in civil rights um, law and 
He represented the Black Panthers at, um, in some cases, for example. And then in the academic tradition, there were many Jewish scholars who actually studied um, Black history and slavery and emancipation. And so that history of emancipation, it's really interesting, has these resonances with sort of Jewish history and Jewish scholarship and with Black history and Black scholarship. Um, and of course, there's Black Jewish scholarship too. That's a whole other point. Um, and so I'm kind of interested in that radical Jewish and radical Black uh, intellectual traditions and how they can come together and how they can be recognized and advanced rather than the sort of tensions over racism that are, I think, appear more often in American um, public media sometimes. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. What inspired you to write this book? So this book, Island Futures, was um, kind of the culmination of a period of almost 10 years of kind of engagement with what was happening in contemporary Haiti and the wider Caribbean. Because in my original work on the region um, as a PhD you know, student and writing my thesis, I had been studying the 19th century. I had studied um, popular democratization movements in Jamaica and Haiti and uh, had done a lot of archival research and had also studied a lot of like cultural anthropology and um, political studies of the region, but I hadn't studied like the current moment now, what was happening now. And I first visited Haiti while I was doing the PhD research, but it was more um, just to get a feel for the place. That was in 1997 with an organization called the Haiti Support Group. And then I hadn't really been back there um, until the earthquake of 2010. And when that earthquake occurred, um, I guess I felt moved to return to Haiti and kind of use some of the knowledge I had of the past of Haitian culture, history, politics, which I had studied from a sort of more academic perspective and try to understand how that might help understand what was happening in Haiti now. And there were some engineers at my university, which at that time was Drexel University, who had um, were applying for National Science Foundation funding to go to Haiti after the earthquake to um, help study um, water and sanitation systems um, rebuilding. And I understood that they didn't know a lot about Haitian culture and history. And so I, um, they asked me if I could join their research and I said, okay, I would. So um, we went there in March of 2010 and then again in, um, in June or July of 2010. And then it was a bit of an ongoing project. And then I had a subsequent project with them where we returned in 2012. And so I was doing all of that work, which um, 
led me to really reflect on what we were doing there. Why were we there? What impact was it having? And not just us as our own team, but the wider earthquake response, right? The international community, all the humanitarians, all the engineers, all the military, all the government officials, all the aid that was being raised. And it it was a really um, uh, conflicted process where despite all the activity that was happening, I could see by being there that it wasn't really getting to the people who needed it most. It wasn't really helping with the reconstruction or with uh, housing or food or water for the people who needed it. And so the book really arose out of my like reflections on that whole period and really wanting to um, say something critical about the, the sort of response to it. And at the same time, from 2010 up to 2020 was a period of uh, climate change impacts in the region of mounting um, hurricanes and displacement and devastation of different places with Hurricanes Maria and uh, Irma in 2017. There had been Hurricane Matthew in 2016, Hurricane Dorian in 2019. And so each time I thought I was at the end of the book, I was like, no, I need to actually relate it to what's happening now with these um, hurricanes and with climate disasters. And so the book took me longer to finish than I was expecting, but um, I think that was for the better. How did you choose the cover art for the book? Can you explain the image on the front cover? Sure. So there's a, a wonderful artist named Edouard Duval Carrier, who is of Haitian origin, um, but based in Miami, where he um, runs the, um, I think it's called the Little Haiti Cultural Center, which is a fantastic space that has art and cultural um, community events. And uh, he has done a lot of great artwork that draws on Haitian history and the, um, this, including the spiritual, um, entities that are called Loa, Loa, who are these kind of um, spirit uh, guides or presences um, in, in the voodoo tradition. And the cover is one of his paintings, uh, which depicts um, a kind of, um, it's called La Traversée, it's from 2016. La Traversée means like the crossing, and it depicts a boat uh, crossing the sea, a wooden boat. And in the boat are a collection of these lois or these sort of spirits. And one of them at the very back is a, a tree. It's a big tree with a face on it and arms and big branching um, cover. And uh, that is also one of the lois uh, who is associated with the forest and others are associated with um, with different aspects of um, life and death and uh, water and um, indigenous uh, history, as well as African traditions. And all of these came together in Haiti because of the middle passage, which was the enslavement of people from Africa, carrying them across the Atlantic to the Caribbean. And the, the Haitian religion of voodoo arose from that crossing that traverse um, and the re-melding of peoples in, in the new world. And here 
are the loa, the spirits kind of being carried in this boat. And they look like they're looking for a home and they look kind of like refugees because Haitians in more recent times have also suffered from um, having to leave their island and having to do so often um, by boat. And many of those boats um, have been dangerous crossings and people have been lost on those journeys. I mean, you know, right up until now, um, there was just another boat that sunk recently off of, off of Florida. Um, and so this crossing for me represents um, both the middle passage of the you know, slave trade. It represents the refugees crossing and what were called the boat people of Haiti, but it also represents the future of climate refugees and the fact that we all are gradually going to be displaced in some ways by the kind of ecological collapse around us. Um, and so it was a great representation for me of Caribbean survival in the Anthropocene. Your preface is entitled An Autobiography of My Mother. Can you speak about your mother? Can you comment on her character virtues, her activism, and her relationship with you? Yeah. My mother, um, you know, was an incredible influence on me because of her really deep um, political commitments and commitments to social justice. And she really had um, dedicated her life to kind of uh, sort of standing with and, and, and collaborating, um, you know, being an ally and walking in the, in the shoes of those who were benefiting the least from the current, you know, arrangement of the world. And she uh, began her career as a social worker and then um, she got certification as a special ed teacher and then worked in the Philadelphia public school system teaching autistic uh, children. And so I think out of that experience, she, she had like a very um, empathetic kind of humanism of, of, you know, recognizing the value of each person and really trying to help each person um, achieve what they could and, and be their best in the world. And she then did a lot of like political work and volunteer work. So she worked for many years with the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And she would go to political demonstrations um, all the time uh, to fight for social justice, to fight against gun violence, to stop the wars in Central America, to um, advocate for women's rights. Uh, and um, she was you know, always committed to a lot of different causes. Um, and she also worked for the organization called MANA in Philadelphia, which um, where volunteers help cook food um, for people who are unable to get out of their homes. Um, initially it was for people with HIV AIDS and then later just sort of broadly serving um, many people who, who needed food services at home. So she worked a lot with like what I call transnational um, thinking and organizing. And um, so for me, you heard my background was like quite academic and I was a, a very studious child and I read a lot of books. And for me, my mother was much more engaged in the world, right? She was really out 
you know, on the front lines. And so it helped her influence helped, I guess, connect me to my, take my, what was my academic learning and my reading and sort of really connect it to real world struggles and things people were going through and things people were fighting for. And so I wanted to bring that spirit to this book. I wanted this book to be not just an academic book, um, although it's still fairly academic, but also to like really try to bring in um, voices of people who are um, out there fighting for things in the world right now. One concept uh, that you present in your book is the nonprofit industrial complex. How is this concept helpful to helping us understand Haiti? So there's a traditional um, concept, which is called the military industrial complex. And for anyone familiar with that, uh, they they might not realize that the term actually came um, from President Eisenhower, who at the end of World War II, there had been a huge buildup of um, government investment in industry in the United States to fuel um, the military buildup um, of World War II. And it had really knit together this kind of power structure of military power and industry deep in the seats of US government. And when he, when Eisenhower left office, he warned about the power of the military industrial complex because he saw that it could undermine democracy. And in more recent times, many of the functions um, that were done by like hard military power were understood to be shifting over to a kind of soft power. And that soft power was often done through humanitarian interventions. I mean, this was like, you know, policy, foreign policy to, to say, okay, rather than invade a country and try to replace the government like we used to do, we'll send humanitarian aid and, and we'll, we'll sort of help in this way that will be more acceptable. And so um, that built up a huge uh, number of non-governmental organizations and humanitarian organizations, particularly in Haiti, where it was said that there was like 10,000 NGOs operating at a certain time, if you looked at like all the registration of NGOs. And people started to write critically about that as the humanitarian industrial complex, which had replaced basically the military industrial complex, because humanitarianism had become a big business. Humanitarianism had become this giant bureaucratic organizational structure of after every disaster, raising money, you'd see the calls for donations and people would you know, use that emotional moment and send donations to help somewhere. And then all of these organizations would mobilize the humanitarian response. But it almost became, um, so institutionalized that it became a like a business. It became like an industry. It became impersonal. And that's what the term is meant to capture. You also write as follows. Um, I'll quote it. The mobilities of both humanitarian and academic travel are always implicated in unequal power relations and forms of consumption that affect the outcomes of post-disaster reconstruction and climate, climate adaptation as well as unequal production of knowledge. In your perspective, how can academics change the ways that they travel and do research abroad 
to take serious account of these moral dilemmas? That is such an important issue right now. And especially um, when, you know, travel, travel is a problem in the world right now, first of all, because of the need to like uh, lower our carbon emissions and the fact that traveling by airplane adds a lot of carbon emissions. And anytime we do academic travel or we're sort of supposed to be bringing humanitarian aid, we're contributing to this kind of elitist practice of being able to fly all over the world, you know, fly somewhere to, to go to a conference or, oh, there's been a, you know, earthquake, we're going to fly there to help them. And you really need to stop and think about, well, are, are there ways to help um, that maybe don't involve us flying there? And what's going on when we think that the, those of us who I, I call it the kinetic elite, we think that we need to travel somewhere to do research, to you know help fix a problem, that we have the solutions. Um, and often we don't, and often we're not fixing things and often we're not actually helping. And our presence is actually distorting the ability of the people in the place to be able to help themselves. And I think it's really important that we reflect critically on that, that we take that seriously. And as you say, it's a moral dilemma. Um, and what's happened in terms of the sort of post COVID um, moment is we've also learned ways to talk to each other remotely much more easily, right? And at least those who have access to this uh, computing power and Zoom meetings. And, and so I think we need to really ask ourselves, is it necessary to go somewhere? And at the same time, I'm a big proponent of like cross-cultural, intercultural communication. And like I said earlier, my ed own education was so informed by being in these other places, being able to go somewhere and learn some about somewhere um, from that place. So I don't wanna like reject place, um, emplacement, being in place, experiencing a place. At, um, I think that can be really in, in, like inform how we think, but we also wanna make it more equitable. So also think about how uh, can knowledge that's produced in a place that's not at the center of power, how can that knowledge, that production of knowledge and of solutions to crises, um, uh, to humanitarian kind of responses to um, difficult events, how can we actually support what's happening in those places rather than just um, extracting from them? And there's the notion that like we're often extracting data, extracting knowledge, and um, we need a post-extractivist approach. Another concept that you utilize in your book is the term of kinopolitical power and kinopolitical relations. Can you explain these terms? And can you share with us where these terms come from and how they help understand Haiti? Yeah, so the root in kino um, means mobility or movement and politics, the sort of uh, um, combination of the two suggesting that there is a politics of mobility and also that there's a mobility of politics, I would add. And 
I talk about kinopolitics to capture the like multiple ways in which um, there's political contestation over who and what can move and where they can move. And that power is often exercised through the control of other people's mobility or immobility. So in other words, if you stop somebody from being able to move, that's a form of kinopolitical power. And you can trace that back to, um, for example, um, patriarchal control over women's ability to move freely. You can trace it back to the system of slavery and what it means to coercively capture people, put them in chains, put them in a ship, take them somewhere else and then control their freedom of movement when they get there. Um, and you can think of it in more you know, uh, recent um, ways, just in, in say the Black Lives Matter has highlighted the way in which um, black people in the United States are unable to move freely, right? Without being stopped by police and threatened um, and killed. And, you know, so right throughout our history in, in America in particular, there, there is a, a, a certain formation of kinopolitical power, which is embedded in white supremacy and that needs to be recognized. And so when we, exercise our freedom of movement now um, to go back to our you know, role as academic researchers or as humanitarians, we have to recognize that we're also exercising it within this kinopolitical structure, um, which is grounded in white supremacy and that that uh, has implications for who can move and how we can move, how easily we can move. Can we cross borders? Um, can, do we feel comfortable in public spaces? Um, do we drive cars? Um, can we get on airplanes? All of those things. And in relationship to Haiti in particular, there's a very unequal regimes of mobility because Haitians have been um, excluded in many ways from uh, being able to to freely uh, move around. Absolutely. You you also write um, that one of the insights to arise out of this work is that although earthquakes, hurricanes, and viral pandemics have very different disaster profiles, their human impacts are each in their own way outcomes of the same coloniality, racial capitalism, ecological extractivism. And the corollary to this is that the processes of recovery and reconstruction in each case requires many of the same tools. Can you say more and can you explain um, in more detail? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the book partly it bridges, you know, attention to uh, the earthquake of 2010, which of course is not an earthquake is not caused by humans, at least not this kind of earthquake in, in the, the Caribbean region. And, but it also is concerned with um, climate change and sort of climate change disasters and the intensification of hurricanes and even the, this sort of COVID pandemic, for example. And these are all very different kinds of um, origins in terms of geo, you know, ecological processes. But what I argue is that disasters are also made by humans in terms of 
the systems that have made people vulnerable to different kinds of disasters. And that disaster itself, um, natural disasters are also man-made in terms of their impacts, uh, how they, how people experience them and how people recover from them. And so whether it was caused by an earthquake or a hurricane or a tsunami or, you know, a virus, it's the social infrastructure that makes a big difference in how we experience and recover from these events. And so social and human systems, I think, have to be part of our understanding of natural disasters and processes of recovery and reconstruction in all of these cases call for the building of uh, more equitable and just social infrastructures for care, for repair, and for reparations. Can you explain the concept of constellations of mobility? Um, it plays a significant role in the book, and I'd love for you to elucidate upon its meaning and significance. Yeah, so partly the idea draws on the work of a geographer named Tim Cresswell, and he wrote about constellations of mobility in the sense um, that mobility itself um, it means not just the act of moving from point A to point B, which you could think of as the physical movement, but also that any movement has a layer of meaning a sort of interpretive, um, you know, semiotic or symbolic meaning um, in terms of how we think about it. And then thirdly, that every movement has this kind of lived or experiential practiced um, uh, being to it, which is a combination of the movement and the meanings as lived through how we do it. Um, and that's a more like phenomenological perspective. So he speaks of constellations of mobility in that sort of three-part way. And it, it draws on um, geographers of space, um, like the French thinker Henri Lefebvre, who wrote about the production of space in a similar way. Um, at the same time, I also, I kind of bring to that um, a real emphasis on um, another tradition coming out of um, science and technology studies which thinks about assemblages, which is the way in which we bring together different material elements. So when we move, we're bringing together, not just like a vehicle moving or a body moving, but all the things that go into making that happen. So the, the shoes or the tires, right? The rubber, the road, the, the um, infrastructure that makes it possible to move. Um, the, also the informational systems, the kind of um, maps or tracking devices or you know, um, bus schedules, it could be anything. All of this goes into a constellation of mobility. And for me, it was important to recognize that uh, as I was moving through Haiti um, in this post-earthquake context, I was bringing not just myself, but I was bringing a whole constellation of mobility that allowed me to move in certain ways um, to, um, you know, I talk about how I had access um, to vaccinations, insect repellents, special clothing, first aid kits, 
all of these things to secure the traveler's body. I had access to rental cars and places to stay with clean water and toilets. I had um, a cell phone with international data coverage and a camera and a you know, wireless internet device loaded with apps. Uh, you know, I had all of these things went into making my mobility possible. And so if I'm going down, you know, a roadway in Haiti and I'm carrying all that with me, I am intersecting with different constellations of mobility of people there who might be um, traveling with different kinds of capabilities, different kinds of technologies, different kinds of assemblages that made their mobility possible. That's actually, um, it hits the nail on the head in light of uh, one of the passages in your book where you stress um, as follows, furthermore, the Haitian diaspora who sought to help their country in distress also, in addition to what you're alluding to about yourself, also usually had greater access to phone internet services, including social media websites and mobile phone services to exchange information and news and money than the local population, while also having greater as access to international funding and resources through overseas contact. Can you speak more about the irony inherent in the inequality that you allude to. Yeah, and there, I mean, it comes back to this question of um, the kind of responsibility we each have and the moral hazards we face. Um, and the Haitian diaspora were incredibly important in responding to this earthquake in 2010. And they, it's they who mobilized, you know, so much um, attention and aid and money. And it's the diaspora who had direct connections to family members and community at home where they could send money directly using uh, what's called mobile money. And mobile money services uh, are sometimes arranged in a way that the um, person in Haiti may not even have their own phone but they might be able to pick up the money um, that's sent to somebody's phone, right? At a sort of monetary um, uh, remittance uh, office. And so it's a, it's a complicated system of getting that money to people, but the Haitian diaspora were, were already set up to do that. Uh, but at the same time, in a weird way, there was a moral hazard in that because they benefited from the humanitarian industrial complex, which is to say they could leverage certain kinds of access and certain kinds of resources. And so there were situations that I observed in Haiti where it was members of the diaspora who were um, gaining influence, gaining um, financially from their embedding in this sort of humanitarian flow. And so they become sort of brokers of, um, of bringing aid to specific uh, locations, communities, <clears throat> people who they, they were connected with. So it's a really, it's complicated and um, unequal terrain. It would be much harder for Haitian-based Haitian organizations that didn't speak English, for example, to access the kinds of things um, someone in the Haitian diaspora could. What do you mean by the concept of the islanding effect? Um, you bring it up in several places in the book, but one of them is in comparing Haiti's earthquake to 
Puerto Rico's experience with Hurricane Maria and the way this was handled by the American administration. Um, you point out that just as in Puerto Rico, similarly in Haiti, the islanding effect made victims of the earthquake appear to be isolated by island geography, when in fact humanitarian responders had vast capabilities for aero mobility and were soon coming and going on a regular basis. Um, how does this concept help us understand the similarities between Haiti and Puerto Rico? It really was brought home to me when I heard then President Trump justify the slow um, arrival of, of any kind of assistance to Puerto Rico, which is of course a US uh, territory um, by saying, he said something like, well, it's an island, you know, and it's not easy to get there. And that was just so um, ridiculous to me when there, there was, you know, like, as, as you just read, I mean, that there's uh, so many flights of people back and forth between the US and Puerto Rico, between Miami and Puerto Rico, right, are very close together. And Haiti, too, it's, it's not that far. Um, the U.S. has a huge uh, military presence in the Caribbean. It has ships. It has Coast Guard cutters. Um, it has airplanes. It has helicopters. So, like, the idea that somehow we couldn't get to these islands was, um, to me, uh, a political construct that what happened in the immediate response to the 2010 earthquake was that the U.S. actually mobilized military ships that sent out messages telling Haitians not to leave the island. They actually flew over and dropped leaflets telling people don't try to leave. They actually picked up people who may have tried to leave by boat and returned them. And this whole idea of um, isolating Haitians during a crisis to me is what our government has been doing for a long time. And that's what I call the islanding effect. It's this way of saying, it's not our problem, it's your problem, and we're gonna keep it over there. We don't, we don't want you coming here. And that's basically how we treat Haitian migrants. We've been doing that ever since the um, various crises of um, what were called in the US boat people arriving on our shores, the interception of people and locking them up at um, Guantanamo Bay, which before it was a camp for terrorist suspects in the war on terror. Before that, it was used to house um, migrants who were leaving Haiti um, and, and Cuba back in the 1980s. And so we have produced this, what I call this islanding effect, um, which is a kind of containment. And then there's uh, our ability to sort of fly in and out. And what was so striking was that like, Haitians were not able to leave and reunite, for example, with their relatives in the United States or, you know, seek medical assistance um, off uh, the island. And the, the so-called helpers, the aid, we were able to fly back and forth. And it just seemed such a, an inequity and, and so um, unjust that, that that's how you would deal with a, a disaster is just sort of contain it. The flip side of the islanding effect, which I talk about in the book, 
is that we can also think of islanding in a more positive sense. And this is where I draw on the thinking of um, a Pacific Islander theorist um, named Teresa Teaiwa, who wrote about islanding as a way for the whole world to approach our limited resources and um, our ecological um, connections is that we, we need to stop thinking in continental terms, like that there's always gonna be another frontier that we'll always be able to go somewhere else and get more um, resources when we run out. And instead to think the way Islanders do, that we have this precious place, that we have to take care of it, that we're connected to it, that the earth is a kind of island. And so that idea of the islanding effect would be to sort of turn it around and turn it into a positive way of living in the world. How do you define aeromobility? Um, you have a passage where you point out um, as follows, the network systems influencing aeromobility include not only passports, visas, and border surveillance systems that allow for or prevent tourism migration and transmigration, but also the licit and illicit movements of freight and goods, transnational flows of money, capital, and financial services, new technologies of mobile information, communication, social media, and the predictable travels of global risks and threats to security, such as drugs, diseases, criminals, guns, or hurricanes. Airports are spaces where these systems converge and diverge, spaces around which narratives of mobility are produced, such as stories of, about facilitating business mobility, securing tourist mobility, bringing emergency aid, or blocking illegal mobility. Can you speak about aeromobility and what are its perils and vulnerabilities? So within the field of mobility research, mobility critical mobility studies, there's um, an, a whole kind of subfield of aeromobility studies. And it's um, an effort to take some of the concepts that I was talking about earlier, like constellations of mobility, like kinopolitics, um, and to sort of apply those to thinking about air systems and air, what we sometimes call air space. Um, so a geographer named Pete Beatty has written a book on um, this kind of production of airspace and how um, flying, it's not, again, it's not just getting from point A to point B, but it involves this entire system of um, constellations of all of these technologies and infrastructures and practices. And um, so airports are one kind of space where we meet those systems, where we kind of see them in action, but the system itself extends far beyond the airport because it involves um, this kind of data um, surveillance systems and all of the ways in which passports and borders work, as you, as you mentioned. So when we participate in air travel, we are kind of participating in this whole system, in this whole airspace, and we're helping to produce it. And it's important to recognize that it's an exclusionary space, that very few people in the world have actually traveled by air, that very few people have passports and are able to actually um, 
get on an airplane and and cross um, an aerial border um, port of entry. And so when we see, you know, when we see um, these, what are called like these sort of migration crises where there's thousands of people kind of coming on foot to border crossings, whether it's like the US-Mexico border or the European borders, part of why those people are there on foot is because they couldn't access airspace. They weren't able to get on an airplane and fly here. And, um, you know, other people are crossing in boats, you know, from across the Mediterranean and, and across the Caribbean Sea too. And it's, um, aeromobility is a way to sort of think about the, um, the control, again, the, the power that's involved in the control over who can be mobile and, and, and who is, is excluded from this space. And it's a very uneven space. So that's one thing I, I sort of look at in the book and in relation to these wider constellations of mobility. Why was the MINUSTA peacekeeping intervention ethically problematic? Okay, so... The United Nations brings peacekeepers to various conflict zones around the world. And at the time that I was in Haiti in 2010, there was a particular um, uh, moment of that peacekeeping force, um, which uses this acronym MINUSTA. And it's um, a UN, what they called a stabilization force. And it had been in Haiti before the earthquake and, and remained after. And what was problematic about it? Multiple things. So first of all, Haitians considered it a military occupation. So many, maybe not all Haitians, but many Haitians did not think that stabilization force needed to be there and that it was actually undermining their own sovereignty. Secondly, those peacekeeping forces um, were found and known to be engaged in sexual exploitation of girls and boys in Haiti. And, you know, I, I talk about that in a chapter of the book on sexual power, um, where I consider both the, the engagement of um, so, so-called humanitarians uh, in um, purchasing sex work and also the abuse of children by the peacekeeping, so-called peacekeeping forces. Um, and it's, you know, really problematic and horrible, but um, in, investigations uncovered these things and, not, and nothing was really done about it. And in addition, thirdly, the peacekeeping force involved a contingent of um, peacekeepers who came from uh, Nepal. No, well, they came from Sri Lanka and uh, they introduced cholera into their base where they were in Haiti after some several months after the earthquake that cholera um, flowed through um, a poor sewage system into a major river. And that major river spread waterborne cholera to the population of Haiti. And, you know, it was, it was 
another a huge disaster upon the disaster that the peacekeeping force actually brought cholera to the country. And then when they when it was shown to have been the case, they denied it for a long time and they never um, really paid for it. They never really helped fix what, what they had caused. In regard to issues of sexual power, um, there's one noteworthy passage where you tell the story of a ride that you took to interview individuals in their homes and what you saw during the course of that visit. You write, yet yet in expecting such a ride, I became aware that we, a small group of American and Dominican female researchers, were interviewing people in their homes and attracting the attention of children who were thereby socially introduced to this foreign man who had a car. Later, I saw such rural children being given rides into town without their parents. I saw young women hanging out at corner shops and waiting for rides since it was mainly men who had motorcycles or other vehicles. It seemed clear to me that there were sexual power inequalities which made young men and women highly susceptible to sexual exploitation. And this was linked in part to their reliance on men for mobility, whether getting a ride into town, getting a ride across the border, getting to places like Sosua, that offered economic opportunity not available at home through having sex with foreigners and ultimately dreaming of getting off the island. Trafficking literally begins in traffic. Can you unpack this passage for us and can you share the larger story of what you observed here? Yeah, so, you know, I as I mentioned, I was... Uh, aware and people were aware that there are that the Dominican Republic has a major um, what's called sex tourism industry, right? It has locations like Sosua where people travel there in order to purchase sex. And it's been well known. It's known for a long time. There's been many books written about, you know, this, the sex work in the Dominican Republic um, as well as the travel of Dominicans to um, other other islands of the Caribbean to also uh, engage in sex work. Um, there's there's a, a, an important book on that by Kamala Kampadu called Sexing the Caribbean. Um, and I was also learning at the time that, uh, that Haitians were also um, being sort of brought into that um, what you'd have to call it pipeline of sex work in the Dominican Republic, as well as, um, you know, young Dominicans. And, you know, that was something in the back of my mind. I knew that was happening. I also understood and knew that these peacekeeping forces were um, uh, being accused of purchasing sex from children in exchange for things like food. Uh, You know, so all of those scandals were kind of happening. But what's really like cringeworthy, horrifying in this experience was to realize that we as researchers were implicated in this. And that's the part that nobody talks about, right? That's the part where, well, we were there, we're supposed to be doing good. We're supposed to be helping, um, whether it's the humanitarians or the researchers. 
And yet, because of the way the constellation of mobility works, if you have access to a car, you have a certain degree of power because people need rides. And not everyone has a car or a motorcycle and they're dependent on these rides. And as that quote mentions, it's it's men who often control, you know, their machinery, right? They they drive the cars and they drive the motorcycles. So women are dependent on men to get anywhere. And children in particular, um, when there's this situation of a pipeline of um, sex trafficking or, or recruiting people into sex work, children are particularly vulnerable to being picked up, right? Pick, literally picked up in a car, picked up and brought somewhere, but picked up for sexual purposes. And by us bringing, going in a car to certain remote locations to interview people who are being affected by flooding that we were studying around this um, Lake Enriquillo, we were introducing a sort of car mobility man, foreign man assemblage into a small remote place where then children could be connected to it. And it's this, it was this kind of falling away of naivety or of innocence and realizing that we're part of this and we need to take responsibility for that. And as part of why I felt it was so important to voice these things, to tell people this is what's happening um, and to promote the, the um, activists, the, the women's organizations in Haiti and the Dominican Republic that are trying to um, work against some of this sexual exploitation of women and children. Speaking of sexual exploitation, um, you, allude as in, you allude to the news that broke up in 2018 to the effect that the British wing of the Oxfam charity covered up an, an investigation into the hiring of sex, sex workers for so-called orgies by staff working in Haiti after the 2010 earthquake, the hiring of prostitutes in such a group context where they likely have little choice in what activities to engage in or not might be better characterized as the commercialization of gang rape. Can you tell the story of this scandal in more detail? Yeah, so, you know, this is, I mean, this is speculative in a sense, because I, I don't know, I don't know the exact details of the situation. I only saw the reporting on it, but the reporting on it was that, you know, these um, quite high up figures in uh, Oxfam UK, when they were in Haiti, had uh, been, been found to be hiring prostitutes and it, it, what they called, they described as prostitutes and described in the press as an orgy. And in my mind, I was thinking, it's not, it's not an orgy. Like that, that term made no sense. And, and the and term terminology around prostitution is also um, controversial when people have are engaging in transactional sex and sex work because it's the only way to live. It's the only way to survive, to find um, enough money to, to live on. And especially in this post-earthquake context, it, it was just so disgusting to me that the people who are the humanitarian responders, who are supposed to be 
there to help would be the same people who are purchasing sex from very vulnerable people who have, you know, have very little and maybe displaced, may not have homes to go to, maybe, you know, living in a tent, maybe children, whatever. And to then have a group of them in, in a, in a situation in a hotel room, right. With these foreign men that's described as an orgy um, was to me closer to rape. And there were many cases and situations where there had been rapes in, in, in described in the aftermath of the earthquake. Um, and often it was attributed, you know, to um, Haitian men that they were, you know, taking advantage of vulnerable women in the tent, what were called the tent camps or the IDP camps. And yet here were these reports that it was um, Oxfam, you know, leaders and the, the UN troops, they were the ones who were engaging in rape and, um, you know, and this was before the, you know, all the, um, the Me Too movement and the awareness of all the powerful men in the world who are engaging in similar activities. Um, but it was very evident that that was happening in Haiti and that in a situation of extreme vulnerability that people were taking advantage of it. Can you comment on the 2010 Haiti gender shadow report? What were its recommendations? Why is it significant? So the gender shadow report is important because so much of the um, response to the earthquake, which mobilized this big um, international community and um, wave of concern and funding, it actually excluded women in Haiti from the decision-making and from the, the process um, of determining what kind of reconstruction should happen. And the 2010 Haiti Gender Shadow Report was something that came out of the work of the many women's organizations um, that exist in Haiti and um, have been struggling for a long time to sort of advocate for women's rights and, and um, um, protection of children and um, holding people, um, you know, so people didn't have impunity when they engaged in sexual exploitation and rape and um, other activities that um, were abusive to women and children. And so the, the shadow report came out with their own set of recommendations about, you know, post earthquake reconstruction. And they're much more um, socially, um, embedded, right, and, and recognize the needs for social, um, you know, health, for education, for welfare, um, for, well, you know, people's well-being, for trauma-informed care for people, in, and, and many other aspects of, like, social solidarity and human and social um, healing that the, the male-dominated kind of um, powerful organizations uh, that were kind of guiding the, the reconstruction effort completely ignored, right? They just didn't, they didn't think in those terms. They didn't care about those things. They were talking about, you know, uh, you know, rebuilding hotels and, and rebuilding the Caracol Industrial Park to, to create jobs and, you know, maybe building roads and things like that. Um, but the, the Haiti Gender Shadow Report to me shows the kinds of 
response and concern that should have been at the forefront and that we need to listen to. On a, on a different note altogether, um, you tell some personal anecdotes in the book, um, one of which is your experience at the Dominican Customs and Immigration Office. Can you share the story of your experience there? Um, so, you know, it's, it's hard to summarize. There's an entire chapter in the book called Bordering Power. And to me, it, it was um, a really uh, important insight that I gained while crossing the border between Haiti and the Dominican Republic. This was while being part of a research team um, on a second NSF project that was on the flooding of um, these two lakes, Lake Azue in Haiti and Lake Anorquillo in the Dominican Republic. And we were there in 2012 and 2013. And um, we, I mean, it's, it's a, a story of a recognition um, of the ways in which we ourselves were caught up in something we did not understand. And that the border itself was this very complicated um, mechanism or constellation of mobility and immobility, and that we were not necessarily empowered actors in crossing that border. And it, and the, the story itself is about, you know, as our research group had rented a big um, white pickup truck, a Ford F-250, and we had all this equipment um, for doing scientific measurement of um, you know, rainfall and bathymetry and things like that. And we were supposed to be going from Haiti um, across the border to, at um, a place called Himani to the Dominican Republic so that we could first study the Haitian side of the, the lake on the Haitian side of the border, then study the lake on the Dominican side of the border. And, I guess, I mean, it's, I guess I feel like there's too much for me to summarize easily in, um, in a short conversation, but that chapter was just all about how we could not find the national authority at the border. It was like, as we passed through the border, there was just multiple different actors and um, people presenting themselves to ask for, for payment for different things. So for, you know, customs and visas and landing cards and car insurance and da, 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 da. And like at each stage along the way, we did not know who we needed to talk to or who we needed to pay money to or which, who would provide us with the right um, stamps or papers. And so it was a very complicated process and it involved three different crossings of the border. And so the chapter, tells that the story of that border crossing. What is the Haiti-Dominican Republic border like? Can you just describe, can you describe, you know, the scene? Can you give us a picture of yeah, what it's so, like to be there for those of us who haven't been there in person the way you have? Right. So this particular border crossing, um, what was at this kind of, um, very narrow pinch point because the National Highway 3, which comes out of Port-au-Prince and goes through Croix-des-Bouquets and then um, along the shore of Lake Azue, the lake 
had flooded the highway and had basically dissolved the land to the point where there was just this one narrow kind of rubble strip along the edge of a mountain and the lake on the other side. And so all the traffic comes along this kind of um, unpaved strip and heads towards this border point where there's a whole series of gates and the gates, um, it's not clear like what what each gate is for or why it's there. And they would have a big sign. The only signage would just say stop. And some of the gates, nobody was stopping. They would like, there were trucks, there were motorcycles, they would just drive through. Um, And then you would get to a point where maybe there would be some little stalls of people had set up along the roadside where they were selling, you know, water or food or, you know, small things. And along those gates, there were various armed men. So there were national police from Haiti. There were people just wearing like lanyards with a name tag around their neck and, and, you know, uh, mirrored sunglasses and you couldn't tell if they were uh, a border authority or, or what they were. And there's all these motorcycles kind of arriving and tap tap um, buses, which are, are carrying people um, and their suitcases and goods. And the, the trucks and buses from Haiti were not allowed to cross the border from according to a new regulation that the Dominican Republic had passed. And so everybody who was arriving had to get out and get on a motorcycle and have the motorcycle carry them over to the Dominican Republic. So there's all the motorcycle drivers, there's the, you know, truck, big trucks, um, many trucks carrying goods from the Dominican Republic into Port-au-Prince. And within all that confusion and sort of um, traffic flow, we were were trying to just cross the border. And um, it was very clear that there was a lot of informal or like under the table activity that was being allowed at that border crossing. And like that the the, the state presence was actually kind of had what I call structural holes in it, which allowed for these informal operators to benefit, to gain from it by stopping people, by charging people money, by, um, you know, infiltrating that space of the border zone with their own operations and activities. And that's what was so interesting to me to think it revealed the um, fiction of sovereignty. Well, I call it the friction and the fiction because the border allowed this friction of slowing down um, travelers and getting benefits, money from them. But it also created the fiction that there was a sovereign state controlling the border when in fact the sovereign state was full of um, holes and gaps and other powers, both higher international powers of like the UN military presence and the um, you know humanitarian industrial complex and foreign researchers, and then these kind of infrastructural holes of political actors from below who were um, profiting from the, the border mechanism. So it was a really interesting way to think about the border. You express the idea that the border plays tricks. What do you mean by this phrase, the border plays tricks? So 
it's both, um, you know, there's a, there's an idea in, um, Caribbean thought of the, you know, the figure of the trickster or in, in wider, you know, um, transatlantic African diaspora culture, the trickster and the kinds of, um, men, generally they were men that we were encountering at the border were these kind of, um, they were pulling a trick on us as, as these like foreign travelers who were trying to find the official border. They're partly tricking us into like, uh, handing over money, passports, whatever to them, only to realize they're not the official or final like people that we, we needed to, to show our papers to. So there's that trickster element. Um, but I also was referring to, to the, the lake itself. So Lake Enriquillo, which was um, flooding and rising and covering the border had this kind of power in and of itself, um, the moving of the water. And so we think of a border as a fixed, you know, line on a map, but in fact, it was not stable. It was neither socially stable, nor was it like geo-ecologically stable. The, the border crossing itself had been flooded and had had, you know, they had had to move some of the border posts and there was talk that the entire highway itself would have to be moved eventually. It wouldn't, it wouldn't last longer. So I was thinking of like how sovereignty, territory, borders that we see on maps are all um, a trick in, in so far as they have any permanence um, that we believe in. It's, uh, it's provisional. Can you explain another concept sovereign territoriality, what kinds of structural holes exist in sovereign territoriality as you describe it? So the sociologist Saskia Sassen has written about the, um, the idea of territory and it's um, sort of other term territoriality. And so I was kind of trying to make a distinction there between territory as a, um, like a physical territory, like a piece of land, for example, that we think of as like a state, you know, has certain borders and a certain piece of land associated with it. Territoriality refers more to the legal um, control and, you know, apparatus that, um, con controls the power over that territory. And so traditionally a state, you know, has that territorial power over its territory. That is, it has a monopoly on um, the means of violence within its territory, which is how like the state is traditionally defined in sociology. But in a place like Haiti, the state doesn't have that kind of territorial um, power and its territory is kind of penetrated by other forces. So the UN um, military, you know, peacekeeping force was actually controlled um, the means of, of violence, right? Because they, they had troops on the ground. You have the US military, which basically dominates and controls the whole Caribbean region, you know, land, sea, and air. Um, you also have what I call the narco economy, um, 
which is, you know, all the, the drug transshipment that's happening from Colombia that stops in Haiti that then, you know, gets drugs up to the United States. And so they have their whole means of movement, illegal and illicit movement and coercive power. So all of those um, were present in the Haitian state's territory, which meant that it did not control its own territoriality. In light of the present, if we go from your book to the present, in your view, what does the decade of the 2020s hold for Haitians? Are you pessimistic about the future of Haitian suffering and Haitian trauma? In what ways could the precarity of Haitian situation worsen? I bring this up in light of um, the fate of Haitian migrants that you that you describe, where you stress that Haiti is also subjected to the recent denationalization and expulsions of people of Haitian descent from the Dominican Republic and the precarious status of Haitian migrants in the Bahamas, Turks and Caicos, Brazil, and the United States. Yeah, you know, when I when I finished writing the book and, you know, it was published in January um, 2020, right around the, the 10th anniversary of the earthquake, I was conflicted over kind of pessimism and optimism. And because I write in the conclusion about some of the social movements that had arisen in that period, um, you know, the, the movement um, called Pei Lok, which had you know, blockaded um, Port-au-Prince and, and tried to question the corruption of um, what was called the Petro-Caribe scandal. So there was a kind of social mobilization happening at that time. And there was a critique of um, the government of Jovenel Moise and, um, um, you know, but between 2020 and 2022, you know, two, two years on since the book was published, things took a turn for even the worse, right? So as pessimistic as one might've been with like a glimmer of hope, then what happened was um, this kind of unbridled spate of kidnappings and basically gang control um, of the country, which showed that the government really was not in control of things. Then the outright assassination of President Moise in the summer, um, this past summer of 2022, and then the installation of a new government, which is seen as completely illegitimate at this point in time. And all this time there have not been elections, there has not been a sitting um, sort of government, um, there, you know, the senators have not been elected, all of that. Um, so it feels like the entire state has basically fallen apart. and is completely controlled by these other forces. So the things that I was talking about in the book have become, I think, even more evident, right? And that the state had been completely hollowed out and was basically in the control of certain shadowy and nefarious forces to the point where they actually, you know, just assassinated the president altogether. And, and, and nobody has, it. The, you know, the people responsible for that have not yet been fully identified. Um, although there are some who implicate the current president in the, the assassination. So, I mean, long complicated story. Um, 
So that could make one extremely um, pessimistic about any good direction in the future. On the other hand, you could say things are so bad politically right now that something has got to give, that something has got to change. And that because patients continuously mobilize and, and call forth their cultural heritage, their tradition of revolutionary democracy and egalitarianism um, and draw on the deep roots um, within their culture, I still believe that they will rise again, like that they will take back their country, that they will um, get a government that they deserve, which is a government that serves the people. Good. I certainly hope so. I wholeheartedly hope so. Um, you ask a couple of rhetorical and hypothetical request questions in regard to the role of remittances in Haiti's economy. What if the direct donations that many foreigners had sent in using text messages had been directly distributed using such means, putting money directly into the phones and hands of the victims of the 2010 earthquake? Wouldn't that have advanced the recovery and reconstruction far more rapidly from the ground up and within local, social, local economic, social, and cultural systems? How would you answer these questions that you pose can you speculate and conjecture for us? What steps should be taken to implement these alternatives? Yeah, and I, I do believe that, um, that that direct monetary remittances would have been extremely helpful. Um, given given the, the, the moment after the earthquake when people had so much concern for um, what people were going through and experiencing in Haiti, so many people uh, did donate, make donations. Um, and because we know that that donated money could, could be sent using this, this form of mobile money through cell phone payments, it could have gone directly to people. Um, in, and even, even to, it could have gone directly to like community-based organizations who would help distribute things to people. Um, but instead it got, it gets like filtered through these, um, external foreign aid agencies that sort of controlled the, the flow of humanitarian aid. And if, if you were in Haiti at the time, you could, you could see that there was some distribution of that aid, but really it wasn't having the kind of impact that people thought when they gave the money, they thought it would really have a more direct sort of impact on people on the ground, which it didn't. So I think, you know, there's a lot to work out of how, how that could work and how it could be done better and um, et cetera. But I just think as a principle starting point, we should think about instead of people from here traveling to Haiti, bringing all the baggage that we bring and thinking we're the ones who are gonna help that we should just stop doing that. I mean, as people in Haiti told us, they just wanted all the foreigners to just go home, right? Just go home. And if we had just given the aid directly to them, they probably could have done a much better job of reconstruction. As we bring this dialogue to a close, I wanted to convey my wholehearted gratitude to you for being so generous with your time and attention 
and for having written a marvelous and erudite book that's a real contribution both to scholarship and to ethics. Um, my final question for you is, what are you working on now or next as your subsequent project? Well, mm, thank you. Thanks. It's been great talking to you about this book. And, uh, you know, I, I had in mind um, a book coming up next, which was going to be about what I call mobile commoning. And it's about the tradition of the commons and forms of commoning and thinking about it in a in a mobile way, in a, in a way informed by mo critical mobility studies about what would it mean to have a, a mobile commons, um, which kind of relates to some of the, many of the, the topics in this book. Um, I should say that since I've become a dean, um, my writing projects are a little on the back burner at the moment. So I'll see how long it takes. Hopefully it won't take another 10 years to write this book, but uh, that's what I'm working on. Amazing. I look forward to reading it whenever it's ready and it will make a significant contribution when you've completed the process. Thank you. Uh, again, it was my pleasure and my honor to be in dialogue with you today. Um, thank you for your generosity. You're welcome. It's been great talking to you. Um, to, our, to our listeners, this has been Ari Barbalat your host on the New Books in Caribbean Studies podcast with the New Books Network. I have been in dialogue today with Professor Mimi Scheller. We have been discussing her new book, Island Futures, Caribbean Survival in the Anthropocene, published by Duke University Press in 2020. Mimi is the Dean of the Global School at Worcester Polytechnic Institute in Worcester, Massachusetts. Thank you. Thank you.